look at our text for the sermon that can be found on page four of your bulletin, I believe, as we move into Romans 8, which many consider uh, the greatest chapter in the Bible, of the greatest book in the Bible, Romans. That, of course, is up to uh, discussion, but uh, this is a powerful, powerful chapter. So Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to say that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. I don't know if you've been following international politics or not. I was a foreign affairs major in college, and so I try to keep abreast of such things. Uh, but there have been some very interesting developments in the U.S.'s relationship with North Korea. It's uh, on again, off again. And many of you know and saw that historic moment when the presidents of North Korea, the prime minister, well, the leader of North Korea and the prime minister of South Korea met uh, for the first time in, I don't know, 35 years or whatever. Well, I don't exactly know what's going on there, but it is a very pivotal area. Um, strategic area, and one of the reasons has to do with the uh, development and proliferation of nuclear weapons. Um, uh, nuclear weapons seems to be uh, the issue right now in foreign politics. We're having similar issues with Iran on the question of what's going on in, in that country. And nuclear weapons are important because of their tremendous power to inflict damage. You know, it's not like a conventional weapon, something happens over there, but no, we are really all interconnected, aren't we? A nuclear explosion that happens over there, you have the radioactive cloud and so on and so on. It is a powerful, powerful, dangerous weapon. And so, needless to say, we have our hands very much in those situations. It's a powerful weapon that we've created, but we're very familiar with powerful forces, aren't we? We live in Virginia Beach. Uh, we've experienced northeasters and hurricanes. I don't know if anyone's ever walked down to the beach, hopefully not into the beach, when a hurricane's happening and seen the awesome power of the wind and the waves and recognized how small we are in the scale of life compared to these powerful forces of hurricanes and, and, uh, and these tidal waves and so on. The most powerful physical forces I'm talking about, but I want to talk about the most powerful forces that are even more powerful than those. I'm speaking about the powerful forces in the human heart, because man is the one who creates nuclear weapons, right? Man is the one who is capable of such evil, yet also seems to be able to do much good. It is the powerful forces in the human heart that are what drive us and what drive this world. The most powerful negative force in the human heart is guilt and condemnation. Guilt and condemnation. 
Well, the most powerful positive force in the human heart is love and approval. When we are born, it's been shown that it's hardwired into us to have a need for love and approval and acceptance from the very beginning. But we've all experienced the negative power of guilt and condemnation in one way, shape, or form or another. We know it, how it can shape and warp the human soul. And we also know the power of love and approval and what it can do to the human heart. I want to talk about the human soul because that is really what this is all about, isn't it? God came, obviously, to change all of creation, but he decided to start with the human heart. And the scriptures tell us that creation and humanity is under a curse. That there is a sentence of guilt and condemnation that sits on every single one of us for the actions that we have done. We are all sinners and rebels, whether we feel like it or not. Creation is under a curse, and because of this curse, we experience the fallenness of humanity. In a fallen world, nature, but also in fallen relationships, whether it be between countries, whether it be between friends, whether it be between a husband and a wife. But God in the gospel has brought a new power into the world, the hope of redemption, a message, a, if you will, sentence of love and approval that can take over and subsume, can destroy guilt and condemnation. See, where we stand with God is ultimately the only question that matters in the end. Because it's impossible for you to live in a manner that is inconsistent with the way that you see yourself, ultimately. And so we hear these words in the passage that there is therefore now no condemnation who, for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Do we really understand it? Do we really live it? What would it mean if we really did decide to take God at his word? That is why Paul is speaking, and that is why I am preaching today. We're going to dig into this passage. And as usual, we're going to look at three specific points. Number one, no condemnation means no condemnation. We're going to look at the sentence that God has placed upon those who are the people of God, those who are Christians. Number two, we're going to look at the mechanism. How is it that God can give this sentence? How is it that we can take him at his word when so much of me often feels the exact opposite of what these words say about me? And then finally, point three, we're going to look at the new reality, how we are to live in light of the truth of who we are, of what God has done in Jesus Christ for us. So let's look at number one, the sentence, no condemnation means no condemnation. Verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now when we see that word therefore, we always look at what's before. And Paul's really summing up what he's been talking about from verses 5 through 7. What I've been preaching about, he's not just referring to the last passage, but really he's moving into a new section, if you will, of Romans, of sort of summing up in light of what I have been communicating to you, 
of what Jesus has done, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now this word condemnation is very interesting. Um, if you look at the old sort of English to it, you have con, which is with, but it's also used as an intensive in this way, in this case, and the word damn, condemnation, it's actually condemnation. Damnation, we understand that term, right? It's a, it, it's a word that you don't want used for you. If you're a prisoner, if you stood in the dock before a judge and been condemned, you have been found guilty. Now who can condemn? It says there's therefore now no condemnation. We experience varieties of condemnation in the world, don't we? Okay? We experience condemnation sometimes from people who we would call friends. Maybe from the world who looks at the way we live and communicates. But Paul isn't talking about the approval or condemnation of people. He's talking about the one person that all of this really, who's, who's um, what they think of us is the only one who really matters, and that's God. There is no condemnation from God, essentially. There is no damnation from God. Now we have to ask the question, why is it that God would or could condemn us? I love this verse in Hebrews 11.5 where it speaks of Enoch. It says that by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now we know that it's because of Christ ultimately that Enoch's sins were paid for. But that's what it means when you please God, when you live in a way in which God is pleased with your actions, in which he approves of you. That's what he's speaking of in terms of approval. But when we do not live in accordance with God, in fact, the scriptures simply say one time is enough. For the wages of sin, any sin is death. But it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those. And if you are a, a Greek scholar, it's very interesting. They didn't have punctuation. They didn't use punctuation in Greek. And so the, the way they would uh, communicate something to really stress it is they would change the order of words. So if you really wanted to say something with a lot of force, you would take the most important word and put it first. And so it actually says no, therefore condemnation. In fact, it says no in such a way that really the translation would be there is no way there is any condemnation. It's a forceful slap in the face, no. It's like shouting it. There's no condemnation. No condemnation there is for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Now, if there's no condemnation, what is it that there is? In other words, if you take a word out, you have to replace a word. The antonym, if you will, of the word. I think this might be the best antonym. Instead of condemnation, the word is commendation. There is only commendation for those who are in Christ Jesus because there's no condemnation to be found. What does commendation mean? It means approval. It means praise. If you are commended for something, you are brought up, you are uh, given a medal, you are uh, feted before the crowd for your actions. You are approved, you are praised, you are 
commended. So you could just as well say there is therefore only commendation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice it says those who are in Christ Jesus. He is speaking of Christians. A lot of us don't understand that Romans 8, 1 through 10 is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's not telling you what you have to do to become a Christian. It's speaking of Christians in terms of this is who they are, whether they recognize it or not. This is what comes along with being a Christian. So those who are in Christ Jesus doesn't mean when you're in Christ Jesus, when you decide to be obedient. It means for anyone who is a Christian, on your best day, on your worst day, on your most obedient day, on your most rebellious day. No, there is no condemnation. Now, notice that word. Now there's therefore now no condemnation. Doesn't mean there's going to be no condemnation when he finally comes and puts an end to sin. Now means now, doesn't it? Now means today. Now means as I'm speaking to you, there is a status that is upon you, that there is now only commendation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, notice verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? He's speaking of the law, which is the law that God has put in our human hearts and also put in the scriptures of how we should please God. And we've spent time in, in Romans 7 showing that the law is good. He refers to it as the law of sin and death because it is the law that does condemn. That we were under this law. The problem was not the law, the problem was our heart, wasn't it? Romans 7.10, Paul put it this way, the very commandment that promised life, in other words, do these things, and you shall be commended before God, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What Paul is saying is, you used to be under a law. And it was a law that sentenced you to sin and death. We live in one particular country. You can only be under one set of laws, and it's the country that you live in. I'm not Canadian. I'm not under the laws of Canada. I used to be under the law of sin and death. And it condemned me because I did not live up to it. Neither did you. But what did the scripture say here in verse 2? That you have been set free. You've been set free from that law, and now you're under a new law. It's not a law of sin and death, but it's called the law of, of the spirit of life. The law is whatever controls you. But sin and death no longer controls us. It no longer oversees us. The spirit of life oversees us. Remember in the beginning of the Bible, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and God spoke, and there was nothing, and there was cold and darkness and unformedness, and God spoke and life came to be. That which was dead came alive. The Spirit brings life, as Jesus says. The flesh counts for nothing. 
the spirit that brought Jesus to the earth, didn't it? The angel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And so the one born to you, even though you are a virgin, will be called the Son of God. It was the spirit of life that took Jesus Christ, who was in the grave for three days, and breathed life into him, and he came out of the grave. The spirit of life creates and recreates. It resurrects. And this law is now upon us. A new law, not the old one, but the new one. And notice the difference between these two laws. One is sin and death. The other is the spirit of life. And one has overcome the other. Now, why is this so important? Why are you spending so much time, Carlos, walking through these things? Because we know our hearts and the power of negative or positive emotions in our hearts. We feel the weight of our sin, don't we? We still do. And there's no shortage of people who are willing to accuse us for not making the cut. Whether it's Satan who speaks into our ears and says, see, you're not worthy. Look at how you live. Look at how you think. I know you. Whether it's the world that condemns us because we don't measure up to whatever standard it has. What about the condemnation that we place upon ourselves? Think of the most powerful negative voice in my life is my own. Where I've been conditioned to view myself under the law of sin and death. And so the most powerful negative forces are guilt, shame, and fear. Fear of my actions and what they're going to bring. Guilt and shame, we often think those are the same things, but they're not. In guilt, we're thinking about whatever action it is that we create, that we did, that's going to have consequences for us. But shame is different. Shame is directly about ourselves. You know where the word shame comes from, by the way? It means to cover. We cover ourselves because we're ashamed of who we are. But the scriptures tell us that the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That I no longer have to cover up before God, for he commends me before myself, for I'm forgiven, or even before others. I don't know about what goes on in your head, but I'm going to let a little window into mine. I grew up in a world, in a, a family, a larger family, where competence was key, where success really was the metric of how you measure your worth. I did not grow up in a family of faith. Thank goodness my, my mother and my father and my sister have come to faith. But the message that was drilled into me was you are as good as what you do. Of course, the question is, has to be asked, how good is good enough? And so there's always been sort of this tape that's running in the back of my head that wants to push in. It says, why aren't you like this? Why haven't you done this? Why can't you do this? It continually condemns. It's never good enough. 
It's never satisfied. And if I'm not careful, I will believe Satan's lie, but that's what God is saying to me. But Paul is telling me the truth of who I am in Jesus Christ. This passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. Oh no, Carlos. Don't listen to him. Because there is in no way any condemnation for you who are in me. In fact, there's only commendation, approval and praise. That's so scandalous. You have a hard time believing that? What could possibly be powerful enough to make all of my misgivings, all of my sins disappear? That I could be this kind of person? The answer is the cross. It would have to be something so great, so powerful, so beautiful, so sacrificial, that would be able to take me from condemnation to condemnation. And so I must see myself as God sees me. I must look not to my failures, I must look to the cross. Indeed, I must look through the cross to a God who loved me so much that he was willing to sacrifice his life. I must dare to see myself as free and dare to live as commended and not condemned. Because this is the gift of the gospel. This is the sentence that God has placed upon my hand. And he said, walk in it. This leads me to my second point, the mechanism, the cross. Verse 3, for God has shown, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice that the law was weakened by the flesh. The law can do many things. It could do many things. It could reveal the character of God, who he was, what was important to him. It could show me a path that if I would live it, would lead to commendation. But the problem was that the law was weakened by the flesh. See, ultimately, the law only has the power to condemn. It doesn't have the power to redeem. I've discovered that there's a big difference between knowing the truth and living the truth. I didn't have the power to live the truth. I still don't. But it says that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But God has done it. So thankful that I follow Christ. If I went to a different religious service, I would spend a lot more time talking about me and what I have to do. But instead, we get to talk about the center of Christianity, which is Christ and what he's done. It's God has done what the law could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came, not as sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was born as a boy to a poor single mother. He was just like us, tempted in every way, experiencing the same situation that we experience. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet he was without sin, because Jesus came and for sin. He was sent to be the repository for sin. 
He was sent to be the one place where sin could be placed. He came to take on sin and to drown it in the depths of the earth. And through taking on sin, God was able to condemn sin in the flesh. But Christ had all of our sins upon him, and I'm speaking to those who are believers who follow Christ. On the cross, God was condemning, not Jesus, he was condemning sin. And Jesus, as the holder of that sin, had to experience the condemnation that went along with it. Yours and mine, and all of it. If there is now no condemnation, and there never will be, that means that all of my sin must have been drowned at the cross. The sins that I've already committed, the sins that I am committing, and the sins that I will commit. Isaiah 53, 5 said that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. All of this happens so that when God looks at you and me, he sees the righteous requirement of the law, how we are to live in order to receive the approval of God as fulfilled in us, in you and me. I was reading recently about nuclear waste storage, one of my hobbies. You know, what do you do with this stuff that powers submarines and carriers and all sorts of things? It's some of the most dangerous, toxic stuff you can find. Well, it's a challenge. They have to do something with it, right? So in the beginning, these rods are so hot, they're so dangerous. The first thing they do is they, they put them in water. They, they, they just sit there for five years. I don't know what it does. That's actually what was the problem with the, the Fukushima uh, plant in Japan. When there was the earthquake, the rods that were in the water that were being stored for the short term, that, that ruptured. But that is not a long-term solution. Often then they move them to these dry casks. They're like these 20 ton, uh, 20 feet high, 180 ton cylinders. And they're in the middle of nowhere. And they're built in such a way that you, you could literally fly an airplane right into them and it would just thrash the airplane. They would be absolutely fine. But that's not good enough either, right? So what they've discovered is that the best possible place you can put them is deep in the depths of the earth. And so they have these underground facilities. Uh, Yucca Mountain, I don't know if you've been uh, examining, they, you know, been going back and forth. They're trying to find a, a deep enough, safe enough place to put this stuff where there's no tectonic shifts or anything because if this stuff gets broken open, we're all dead. It has to be put far away, deep away from us. The most dangerous thing in the world, my friends, is not guns. We want to take guns out of our system and yet we weaponize our children. It's not racism. It's not ignorance. 
most dangerous thing in the world is sin. What's in our hearts can destroy the world and ourselves. See, the cross shows the power and the danger of sin. Jesus Christ is the ultimate destruction facility in which all the sins of his people were placed on one man. But sin was not simply contained. Sin was eradicated, our sins, at the cross. As Jesus went down into the tomb. And God has done it. God is greater than our sin. It says so right here. This passage is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's the truth. So what's our response? We can deny it. We can continue going back to the law of sin and death. I can take care of this sin problem. I can fix myself. I'll get there. Just give me a little more time. We can dilute it. Yes, he did some great work. Now it's my turn. Thank you for the boost. But it's on me now. I've got to get this sentence off of my head. We can deny it now. We can dilute it. We can embrace it. Someone once asked Jesus, what is the work of God that he requires of us? Jesus said the work of God is to believe. When Satan tempts me to despair, when I have no hope in myself or in this world, when I sin, I look not to myself, I look to the cross. Because it's paid. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm and do not let yourselves again be burdened by the yoke of slavery. The guilt shame of fear. Which brings me to my final point. The new reality. Verse 4 sums this up. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What's the difference between information and transformation? Information is something you hear that you need to do something about. Transformation denotes a fundamental, a fundamental change. And a transformation has occurred if you are a believer in Christ. We're now under a new law, and we are now no longer indwelt with sin in our spirit. I'm not saying we don't sin, we're going to talk about that next week. But we're indwelt by the Spirit. I love that passage in the praying of the scriptures that Renee read, in the valley of dry bones. You may feel like you're in that valley, but the Spirit of God is in you. 8.10, Romans 8.10 says, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. It's the Spirit that brings life. And we no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus said, it is for your good that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send my Holy Spirit. And through him, I will live in you. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Now, wait a second. Don't we walk sometimes according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? We're going to talk more about that. But Paul very clearly says we walk according to the Spirit. What is he talking about? He's saying that our fundamental bent of who we are, in our core of cores, that we are indwelt with and controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life. See, flesh has no life in itself, does it? Part of my job is to marry and bury. I've seen it when the spirit of life has left people. The body is still there. The spirit of who they are is gone. But what he's saying here is more than simply the spirit of living, the spirit of life has brought life into you, that Christ is in you. And because of this fundamental change, you can't go back. There's no way to go back. The spirit who brought life into the world, the same spirit who separated the waters and the Israelites passed through, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you and me. We are a containment facility, if you will. We're the most powerful person on the face of the earth. So we must live out of who we are, not who we were. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. What does this mean? It means Jesus is alive today and dwelling in your heart through his Holy Spirit. To be sure he's physically in heaven, but he's in you. You don't follow simple words of how we are to live. If Jesus is resurrected then, he's resurrected today. And his life is calling forth to us in our hearts. Saying, follow me. Trust me. Believe in me. He's a living Savior. So we're never alone. We're never powerless. We're never without hope. Because he who's in us is greater than he is in us. You can't go back. Why would you? God through Jesus Christ has moved us from condemnation to condemnation. You no longer allow yourself to live under anyone's condemnation. But rather live out your days under his approval and choice. Walking in the Spirit. To know to what God has done. To what God will continue to Listen to what God I have the reality of the truth that you are in me, that you 
Care to live as between the men and women. It always is like 